All right. <clears throat> Welcome to another episode of the Stairway to Seven podcast, where we talk about all things, <clears throat> excuse me, entrepreneurship, mindset, financial literacy, um, and the Stairway to Seven because there's no elevator to success. You got to take the stairs. And importantly, six figures ain't what it used to be. So we need to change the conversation to focus on making seven figures. And with that, today we have a very special guest, a person who has personally inspired me. As a matter of fact, you don't know this right him, but you're the reason I got certified as a CFEI. I didn't tell you that before, but now, now you know. All right, so we have Rakim Sabri. He is a TED Talk speaker, not TEDx, TED Talk, published author, uh, contributing author, uh, media celebrity. What, what else did I miss? <laughs> I think you covered them. I think you covered most of it. All right, all right. So this is very exciting for me. Um, because so far in the podcast that, you know, this is a new podcast. Um, so to have somebody of your renown on, number one, it's exciting for me. But importantly, I think our audience is going to benefit because as I've been talking about mindset in our previous uh, podcast episodes, one thing that I started to talk about um, just to kind of plant the seed was the idea of financial trauma. And this is something that I've only learned from you and I've heard like one other person talk about, but as we try to peel back the layers to look at why we're in the places that we're in. It makes perfect sense. Unfortunately, this is information that we hadn't had before. So this is really important for us. Now, before we get into the weeds, people may not know you, right? So there might be people who were heavy in social media, but in different spaces. So they may not know your story. Um, how do you typically introduce yourself to people who may not know who you are, or what you do? Mm, good question. Um, I find that I have to constantly remind myself that people have jumped on this train, right, at different points in time, right? So when I first started in, like, the public space, I guess, and social media and such, my focus was just strictly mentorship, not even financial literacy. Um, and then I pivoted into financial literacy or financial education and talking about the importance of and just really regurgitating a lot of the stuff that was already out there. Then I pivoted into financial empowerment. I thought that that was a little bit more niche, a little bit more specific. And I found that big brands, big organizations were interchanging the terms financial empowerment and financial literacy. And I'm like, well, that's, that's not it. And then, of course, as you mentioned, I landed on financial trauma where I focus now. So I think it really depends on the audience. But I introduced myself as an author, a columnist, speaker and financial coach. I think that really just kind of covers the, you know, the all the different aspects of the work that I do and the work that I have been doing. Okay. I like that. I like that. Um, now, for many of us, um, you went viral, or we came to know about you when you went viral uh, for quitting your job. And you talked about, like, the struggles of you know, workplace culture and then toxicity and how it affects mental health. But again, still, we may have people who don't know the story. Um, if you wouldn't mind just kind of recounting that story so that we can really understand um, how that shift in your life took place so that you're in a space that you're in now so that when you're speaking two different topics, they understand that it's not just uh, something that's theoretical, but something that you've lived and overcome, and then we're able to make a pivot. 
Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that, but uh, just to kind of summarize, so I spent 10 years in the banking industry. I started at 21 as a part-time teller and I was customer facing for about six years, pretty much doing everything in the uh, branch environment. The last four years of my banking career, I was back office support um, in operations discipline. So I managed programs. My title was program manager. In May of 2021 uh, was when I had gotten to a point where I was like, you know what? I want to do this solo thing, right? And there's different ways that I articulate that story, but I think the most important um, aspects of that story for me to share definitely surround mental health and the impact of mental health on Black men in particular, but Black people in general in a corporate environment and the way that we have to learn how to be other than ourselves and that we have to learn how to navigate the political atmosphere in order to um, really just get by. But if we have any aspirations on what growth looks like to succeed. So um, I had been playing that game for a decade and um, when I started picking up steam in my own personal endeavors outside of the corporate environment, and I learned that I don't need the validation of my supervisor or my supervisor's supervisor, and that there was really no cap or no limit with regard to time on when I could produce the things that I was producing, whether that be you know writing a book or writing for publications or going after certifications. If I could take ownership of that growth on my own, then there was really no limit to what I could accomplish. And so uh, that I was very content at the time to do both. Uh, I needed to make money. I needed you know, to take care of myself, pay my bills. And I didn't have the confidence, I would say. Um, actually, let me, let me retract that statement. It wasn't really an issue of confidence as much as it was an issue of I had drank the Kool-Aid. I was brought into this idea that um, in order to survive, Financially, I needed to have a job. And it was a combination of frustration and just the culmination of all of what I had shared, right? The microaggressions, the passive aggressive behavior, the um, limiting behavior, right? You know, keeping me on a leash and saying, hey, you know, you can only go this far, but you have to do this thing first, the dangling of the carrot, and then the attacks to my person, mm-hmm. right? Um, the attacks to who I am and how I show up. I just, um, I said, you know what? I have something to go to. I've been building a brand. I'm an author, right? I'm a speaker. And not, you know, not just an author, not just a speaker, but to your point, like I've delivered a TED Talk. I, you know, my book was best-selling. I'm writing for these publications. And so understanding the gravity of my accomplishments was a big part of building the confidence needed to, recognize that there's opportunity for me to make money outside of that environment. And so um, after I took inventory of what it is that I had accumulated uh, by way of assets, um, what it is that I've accumulated by way of connections, what it is that I've accumulated by way of skill set, I said, you know what, I could do this on my own. And so I made the decision to leave. Awesome. Now, you, you mentioned an important point, and that was that in these environments, we have to effectively suppress some or part of who we are in order to gain validation and acceptance and, and to have an theoretically unimpeded career trajectory. And I found that myself. So for example, I'm a fairly large guy, like I'm six, five, three bills. And I find myself like physically shrinking in front of people 
so that they don't feel intimidated. So, and I, there was a point when um, I worked in a bank centuries ago, I worked at Nations Bank. Um, and it was a, it was a bad deal. You know, um, I had applied for the uh, management program. They flatly denied me and hired people that not only were less qualified. So for example, they, they hired this woman who um, was a high school graduate. She had done no education after high school and had worked in a department store prior to joining the bank as a teller. They put her in the program. So it's like, okay, I can see where this is not going to end up, you know? Um, and then as I tried to find answers, all the, all the responses were pretty vague. And there was never anything that was concrete. But what I took away from it was, you're not exactly the representation that we want for the bank. You know, so as you talk about that, what what does that do to you to to know that, like you said, you can't show up as who you are, you know, with your full self, you know, and and expect to be valued? How does that impact you? I think that's a good question. Um, and I would reframe just kind of the thought process there, because I imagine there are a lot of people like me. Um, well, not like me, but a lot of people that look like me, whose experiences will run parallel and that they would disagree that they couldn't be themselves. And so what happens effectively in these environments is that we change ourselves, right? So we're being ourselves in these environments, but ourselves as we show up is a different version than who we are at home. And the problem with that um, is that you forget who your actual self is because you spend so much time in that environment, right? So I talk about my time in corporate. I started at 21 and left at 31. So all of my 20s, pretty much, I spent in that space. And during that time period where most people are getting to know themselves and deciding who they want to be, you know, permanently as a person, I was influenced by cultural norms, corporate corporate cultural norms that says I have to show up a certain way, I have to dress a certain way, I have to talk a certain way. And so to your point, um, shrinking in the presence of other people is to some extent expected. And if you challenge that, or if you come off as threatening, then your push right into into the you know the front of the ranks as far as what opportunities look like become limited so how do you change how you show up to show uh, a non-threatening version of yourself how do you change your pitch and tone when you speak mm-hmm. do you make eye contact right and then how do you how do you straddle that line of coming off as confident but not cocky or not arrogant right and so there's a lot to be said there, I think, around perception. And one of the things, one of the phrases, rather, they toss around quite a lot in the corporate environment is, well, perception is reality. Mm-hmm. But perception is whose reality is the question you ask, right? right? And so who controls that reality then becomes the bigger question. And as a man, and the way that I was raised as a man, I was always taught that a man controls his environment. Right. And so then that 
you know, another layer to pull back says, well, in those environments, are we allowed to be men? And when I say we, I mean, black men, are we allowed to be men in those spaces? And, you know, I get a lot of pushback when I talk about the, the black man experience in these spaces, because there are black women who experience microaggressions and the systemic inequalities that um, impact both groups. And so then you have to go down the rabbit hole of intersectionality and you know, women are not paid at the same rate as men are, but then black women on top of that, you know, have their set of issues that are very different than ours. And so my, um, my rebuttal usually is that, well, I can only speak from the experience that I have, right? I don't have the black woman experience. I have the black man experience. And so um, I think that those problems certainly need to be acknowledged. Um, but, but talking in terms of my experience, maturing into a man, um, certainly in my 30s, is a very different experience than what maturing through my 20s looked like. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes in those environments, my direct leadership were middle-aged white women who um, you had to kind of dance around, again, this idea of, are you threatening? Mm -hmm. Are you intimidating? Do they feel the need, when often is the case that they do, to um to to have these power plays right to show that they are more powerful than you and um and that was my experience unfortunately towards the end of my career but i i say that kind of tongue-in-cheek because the fortunate part of that is that it landed me where i am today okay. so i i would think that <clears throat> especially given the impact that you you point out on your mental health that somehow there has to be um, a related impact on or or a wider, a broader impact on trauma, right? So you talk about financial trauma, and it would seem that these experiences also feed into that. So if you could explain first, what is financial trauma? Like, and, and how do we end up there? And what is its impact on us as adults? Yeah, I love that question, because they do they do intertwine, right? Um, when I think about how financial trauma can impact your willingness to stay in an environment that you're being abused, right? Whether that is a domestic environment, whether that is a working environment um, or any environment, really, there's there's a reason for that. And, and I grew up and I talk about this or I used to talk about this quite a lot I grew up experiencing aspects of poverty. So for me, a big driving motivator, especially in, in corporate spaces and working environments was to position myself as far away from poverty as possible. So I need to be making the most money that I could make, chasing the promotions as fast as I can get them so that I can have more money, so that I can either put more money away, invest it, whatever, pushing that poverty potential far away. What I didn't realize at the time because of the trauma was that poverty is a mindset, right? And so operating in scarcity says, I need to get as much as I can because if I don't have it, somebody else will. So to answer your question, um, and financial trauma is defined in a lot of different ways, but I define it as any instance, um, either observed or experienced, that has a negative impact on the way that you view money, what you believe about money, or how you interact with money. 
Um, I believe that everybody experiences financial trauma at some point or another because there's so much information out there relating to how you manage money or how you should be managing your money. And that misinformation or accurate information received at the wrong time um, can have a negative impact on how you then execute on financial strategies, whether that be related to credit, whether that be related to investing. And of course, those situations can have an impact on your willingness to then move forward through those things. So I was having a conversation last night. And this individual that I was talking to had shared with me that they were trading cryptocurrency and that they had to really kind of check themselves when the crash happened because they were like, I, you know, I lost so much money, lost so much money. Right. And they're like, I'm walking, I'm a walking deck right now. (laughs) You know, um, but I think over the last couple of years with social media, there's been a lot of emphasis placed on the cryptocurrencies and, and, you know, the meme stocks and actual stocks that have value, but are um, hyperinflated based off of their popularity on social media. And people are getting into these markets without really understanding what it is that they're getting into with money that they need. And then getting burned in the experience, which can have a negative impact in the future on their willingness to invest, period. But they never had the, the right foundational information. They were just told, invest, right? Or they heard a soundbite that said, invest. And so they went and they followed that advice. So I, I think that that's a really good example of how trauma can impact us in the early stages of our knowledge on managing personal finances. But I've seen... Um, it, you know, over my banking career, I've seen many situations occur, simple and complex, relating to, you know, the loss of life and how do you, as the surviving child, spouse, et cetera, go and um, assume ownership of the assets that were left behind, um, divorces, and, you know, who gets what after all the fighting is done, um, inheritance, or people who've always been wealthy, who've always had money, but suddenly they now have to manage their own money and they don't have a middleman or a money manager to tell them what to do. So now they're like, well, how do I handle this wealth? So I think when we hear terms like financial education or we hear terms like financial trauma, that we automatically box off the people who have money or who have had experience with wealth as being ineligible or um, not needing education on these topics when really they are just as vulnerable, if not more vulnerable than we are because they have not had time in that space. Um, So let me ask you this. So one of the things I talk about, excuse me, are the, um, the money scripts that we have running in our heads that kind of impact our relationship with money as adults. So for example, you know, you're a kid, you go to the store, you know, you get to talk before you go in. All right, when you go in, don't take none, don't touch none, put your hand on, don't break none, because I ain't, pay, you, know, you know, we get that. And then the way we approach going to the stores, okay, most of the stuff I can't have, there's always a lack of money. We don't have enough. I can't have what I want. Right. But then as you move into adulthood, right? Many people, like I said, even if you have a skill set that has allowed you to earn, whether you know, that's whatever it is, right? 
Um, you might be a scientist, you, you might be an athlete or an entertainer, whatever it is. But still, our relationship with money hasn't been healed. Because I remember you had a post once and you said, when I ask people to describe their relationship with money, people will often say, oh, yeah, I can, I can, you know, I'm good at saving or uh, balancing or whatever. And you said, but that's not your relationship, right? right. That is a function you know, but that's not the relationship. So can you help people understand how how your beliefs and and values and thoughts around money are very different from the functional tasks that we perform with money? Yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing that up. So that was an exercise that I did with the group, uh, the low-income group, actually. And um, I, you know, I kind of knew the lay of the land, right, before I delivered this presentation. And to your point, that was the feedback. Either I'm, you know, I have a problem with overspending, or I understand how to save, or I understand how to budget. Um, so I would say I would pre I'm pretty good at it. And you know, my rebuttal uh, was, well, yeah, you're talking about money management. But you're not talking about your relationship with money. And so, when I ask that question, what I'm really asking is, does money make you anxious? Right? Does money make you fearful? Does talking about these topics have a negative uh, response is talking about money a negative trigger and if that is the case well let's explore why and I love the analogy that you use um well really not the, the analogy but the reality that you articulated when it comes to um, us as children going into stores and being told you know don't touch anything uh, don't ask for anything I can't afford this thing or even like the really popular, do you have McDonald's money, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, building on that as adults, what happens is because we were conditioned to not have, when we get to a place where we can have, it's going to go one or two ways, right? We're going to maintain that same uh, kind of modality and saying, well, I don't have enough, so I can't have that or I have to constantly buy like the cheapest thing or, you know, shop the deals or the name brand or whatever. Or we go off the rails in the other direction and say, well, now I can afford it and I'm going to buy the most expensive version of everything that I can because I can afford it. Mm -hmm. And so that's not a function of money management necessarily because if your income can support those purchases, then it's not deviating from the way that you overall manage your picture, right? You can budget for the expensive items, mm -hmm. but are you making those choices because you're looking for quality mm -hmm. in the purchase of those items? Or are you making that decision because now you can, right? And so um, the power to do something doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to be exercised. And in that, um, I think a lot of people, I know a lot of people who do kind of err on that side, the, the, the side of lavish luxury mm -hmm. are doing so as a trauma response. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they don't have the money management. Um, and I'm, what I'm speaking of specifically is like the budgeting in place to say, okay, I have done X, Y, Z. I've paid myself first. I've invested. I've done like, these are the priorities that I've taken care of. Now I have a little bit of play money. I can kind of do whatever it is that I want to. Yeah. 
And what's challenging, I think, as a financial educator and and certainly somebody who's exploring the space of uh, financial behavior is that there's no one size fits all approach, right? So advising people on how they should be managing their money. So I can't go to you and say, well, you know, yeah, you went and bought the comforter set that cost two times the amount of this comforter set where they are functioning in the same way, right? But one is obviously more comfortable um, or more, there's better quality associated with that. And if it's not having a negative impact on their ability to do other things, then maybe it's a good purchase. But if it is having a negative impact on their ability to do other things, well, then maybe it's not a good purchase. I saw somebody tweet yesterday, if you're, um, if you have a pair of shoes that are more expensive than your bed, then your mattress, right? You're doing it wrong. And I thought that that was just so hilarious, but it speaks to a reality that we're talking about, right? People will value certain things, whether that be an article of clothing, whether that be a food item, whether that be jewelry, whether, you know, whether that be a car, um, over things that are arguably not so arguably necessary or more of a priority. And, um, one of the, and and I'm preparing to, to, uh, speak on a panel for a conference next month. And we're talking about removing, um, privilege and shame through the articulation as a financial educator to other, to our audiences and saying, Hey, you know, you have to be conscious too of how you impact people that are listening. And so you don't want to judge people for the decisions that they make, but you want to present them with information so that they can make informed decisions. But at the end of the day, somebody who's navigating a financial trauma or a lack of financial know-how is going to make a decision based off of what you say, regardless of how careful you are in crafting that response. And so it's an interesting space that I'm navigating right now because um, I don't want to be accusatory or judgmental in my delivery of saying, hey, you know, you shouldn't be out there buying the $250 pair of Jordans when, you know, you could buy a couple of shares of Apple because, you know, maybe that's not where they're at. Um, but helping people to understand the value of purchasing an asset over a liability um, from a very kind of like high level perspective, I think, is a safe space to be in. And understanding why they're opting to buy the flashy thing now versus the delayed gratification associated with buying the asset that can produce income for them in the future um, is is the challenge. I remember um, not long um, after after you quit your job, you were on uh, you were being interviewed by someone. I forget who it was, but you spoke to the fact that. Um, and I think this is before the Apple split that you had X number of shares of Apple. Um, and with the split, you know, you're thinking about grabbing some more shares, but based upon your track record of investing, you didn't have the same financial fear that other people had, you know, even in light of having left your job. So where did you develop that knowledge and skill set was that from working in the banking industry? Was that something that you were able to self-educate on or, or did you have a, a coach or a mentor? I think it was a combination of all of the above. Um, 
certainly I was exposed to products and services related to, you know, financial service stuff, right, through on the job. Uh, I worked initially for Bank of America, and the brokerage that I use is with Merrill Lynch. So um, I had a free relationship with Merrill Lynch as an employee of Bank of America, which made, you know, learning the the interface and all that stuff very comfortable for me. And then after leaving Bank of America, and, you know, even up until this day, I've maintained my brokerage with Merrill Lynch because it's just where my money's always been. Um, But in that experience, of course, you get hands-on, on-the-job insights to not only how you manage your money, but how other people manage their money. So I would see people came in with accounts with Merrill and, um, you know, what the status of their uh, combined balances afforded them by way of privilege in the bank because of the relationship. And, you know, I'm, I'm not like a product evangelist that says, okay, you know, I have Merrill, so you need to go out and have Merrill, right? Like I have Fidelity, I have TD Ameritrade, I have, um, I think those, well, I have, you know, like the Robin Hoods and stuff like that, but, you know, my brokerages are kind of spread out. I just opt for, you know, a majority of my money is with, with Merrill. So um, those definitely on the job component, but I wasn't licensed. I didn't get licensed. I wasn't interested in getting licensed. And so understanding kind of the ins and outs of how to make these decisions, why to make these decisions, how to weather the change in economic cycles, that was very much trial and error and experience-based. Um, there was some independent education done through reading, you know, watching videos, attending seminars, that helped me to understand, at least on a very high level, that markets do indeed cycle. And so um, the mistake that most people make is selling at the bottom of the market or trying to time what is the top. And so um, for me, I'm a very lazy investor. And what I mean by that is it's just buy and hold, right? That makes the most sense for me. I don't have the the anxiety of trying to chase the highs and the lows or looking every single day at, you know, what's what. It's just buy, buy buy and um i've been buying and holding apple i think since 2013 2014 so you know the company has grown quite a bit over that time period and um i've just been very committed to you know doubling down on my positions with apple um because i believe in the company i I mean i use all of their products for the most part and um you know, that gives me greater satisfaction in the purchasing of their products because I know that I'm a shareholder. Um, As far as mentorship goes, I I wouldn't say that I've had somebody to like take me by the hand and say, okay, Rakim, like you should do this. You shouldn't do this. This is what, you know, life could look like for you if you do this. But, you know, I think it's important to define mentorship, right? And so, you know, how do you how, who do you consider a mentor? Do you consider, you know, somebody that you can see and touch and talk to as a mentor? Or do you consider, you know, this book that you pick up or this video that you watch or this conference that you attend? Do you, do you consider the person delivering that information a mentor? And how do you um, follow their content? 
And I know that that's kind of a slippery slope with social media's um, push around the 30 second to 60 second sound bites, right? Because you can get a sound bite that's 60 seconds and take it out of context if you don't have the whole hour long conversation that was being had around it. And that's happened. Um, you know, big fan of Grant Cardone. I like, you know, what he talks about. I like his attitude around investing and sales and, you know, just the passion that he has around a lot of the work that he does. But my first exposure to Grant Cardone was a 60 second sound bite that said buying a house to live in is a bad investment. And I was like, what? And I had just bought a house at the time. And I'm like, what is he talking about? Right. And I was like, oh, this guy is just like super popular, has all these followers and he's giving out this misinformation from a place of privilege as a white man who has all the opportunity in the world where, you know, black, black home ownership has been on the decline. And, you know, it is the fastest way to build wealth through, you know, real estate. And so I just thought that was irresponsible, but then I realized how social media works, right? Of course it's, it's supposed to be controversial so that people can listen and talk about it. He's marketing. And um, so I, I share that to say that when, I mean, even if somebody listening to me um, for mentorship unofficially, that take, follow this person's journey, follow their track record and the consistency in the messaging that they deliver, get the whole story and let that be your guide as a mentor as, instead of looking at the 60 second or the 30 second sound bite and saying, oh, okay, that's what he said, that's what I'm gonna do regardless of if they have the blue check or not or you know if they have a hundred thousand followers you know what i'm saying like don't let the credibility associated with other people's validation impact your ability to extract valuable information that's going to be potentially life-changing for you got to do your own due diligence right that's a good point and actually um something that I've been thinking about is this, right? So when you're talking about mentorship and who you're learning from, when it comes to financial education, for example, uh, two huge figures in that space are Kiyosaki and Ramsey, right? Robert Kiyosaki and Dave Ramsey. Now I've, you know, in my circle of, you know, family and friends, I've cautioned people about getting too deep into them because of what you just mentioned, right? So the place that they're speaking from, they don't have the same, the same experiences that we have, um, haven't come from, there was, I mean, depending on how much of rich dad, poor dad you believe, haven't had the same uh, experiences with financial trauma that we have had in our neighborhoods and in our families generationally. So, you know, you might get, some strategies that might be effective, but on the whole, I caution people against taking everything from them. How do you think it makes the most sense for us to determine whether we should be listening to someone and taking their advice, and then how much of that to take on board? I like this question. Um... So I'm sure you've seen uh, and others have seen, I have this uh, 
kind of push-pull relationship with Kiyosaki in particular's content and Ramsey's content as a whole uh, because of the way that people and Black people specifically evangelize and patronize their work. Um, And to your point, I don't believe that the work that they have done or the work that they're doing in terms of content created was created with Black men and women in mind or created from a place of understanding or acknowledgement to the struggles that are systemic, racial, et cetera, that we experience and have experienced in this country. That said, I think it's very important to um, kind of take their content with a grain of salt, right? I love Dave Ramsey's that snowball, right? That's the thing that he's famous for. Um, and there are a lot that has helped a lot of people get out of debt. It's a good strategy. And to be honest, I don't know that it's something that he necessarily created or if it's just something that he popularized. But, you know, when you hear the debt snowball, you think of Dave Ramsey and his baby steps, right? right. Robert Kiyosaki talks about the cash flow quadrant. And again, I don't know that that's something that he necessarily created, but he certainly coined it. And when people talk about the cash flow quadrant, they think about Robert Kiyosaki. Right. So I think that those things are impactful, um, useful things to reference in the delivery of content. Certainly reading the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, opened my eyes up to entrepreneurship, business ownership, investing in a very different way than I understood it. Um, And I was in my early 20s when I was exposed to his content. That, of course, has had a ripple effect on me today. Um, That's that I think people have a hard time separating the person from their work. And, you know, to even get a little bit more specific, people have a hard time separating a person's views from their work. And so how do you extract someone's genius or innovation from their disposition towards you or somebody that looks like you, right? And so I don't know what Robert Kiyosaki's personal feelings as it relates to Black people in this country are other than what he's articulated on Twitter. Same thing with Dave Ramsey. But I do know to your point that their experiences are very different than what our experiences would have been or have been. And therefore, there is a level of understanding that they cannot have other than academic understanding, right? If they wanted to take the time, energy, and effort and, under, and you know, doing the research to understand how these things have impacted us. But I see on the other side of that, so many people arguing, and I used to be one of them, so many people arguing or promoting their book, right? I used to go and say, hey, Go read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That book changed my life. Um, I, I never really read Dave Ramsey's book, so I never promoted it. But I you know, I know that Dave Ramsey's work is um, circulating in Black churches. So, I mean, there's a level of popularity there that's just kind of un, unmatched. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really the reason why I decided to write my book, because I was like, you know what, I can extract the pieces of information that I've learned from them tied into my own experience while talking about my experience and how those things impact the way that I move financially and the way that I've moved financially. In that when we're talking about concepts that most traditionalists in the financial education space um, stand behind firmly, 
I can kind of shake things up and talk about how, well, maybe it's not necessary to have an emergency fund of six months to a year because maybe it's necessary for us to do it a different way, right? And so I talk about um, my story. I When I went to go buy my house, I was 26 years old and I did not have the backing financially of my family. And, and it's not because they didn't want to, it's because they didn't have it, right? So, you know, I was the one that people were coming to asking for money, not the other way around. And so my big fear going into buying my house was, well, what happens if I need a new roof, which I did? What happens if the water heater goes, which it did? What happens if I need to buy a new furnace, which knock on wood, I won't need to worry about at least in the immediate future. Um, how am I going to pay for these things? And those what ifs almost deterred me from making the purchase. And so when you talk about financial trauma, like there is that preemptive trauma associated with anxiety of how can I get out of this situation or am I making enough money to maintain the mortgage? And um, those are not things that Dave Ramsey talks about. Those are not things that Robert Kiyosaki talks about. The, 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 um, the wealth gap that exists. And, and I want to be clear too in saying the wealth gap that intentionally exists as Black people in this country have been robbed of, of wealth multiple times over. Um, it's not an accident. And so when we talk about going out and buying the multifamily house and, you know, repeating this process over and over yet certainly it's something that can be done, but it's also something that comes with more apprehension because of the painful history that a lot of our families have navigated um, or the income disparities that a lot of our peers and families do navigate. And so my situation, I couldn't have an emergency fund fast enough to account for what it was that I was buying because I didn't know what I was buying. So my strategy involved getting access to a lot of credit very quickly. And um, so then I had maintained this idea that, well, I don't, I don't need an emergency fund because if an emergency comes up, I'll just, credit, I'll just put it on credit. And that will give me the leeway that I need to then liquidate what it is that I need to liquidate from an asset perspective and pay it off. And I've had that conversation with other people in the personal finance space and they're like, what? No emergency fund? Credit? Over leveraging? Like, it just, it's like shocking to them. But it's a strategy that I had to use out of, I won't say survival, but just thinking outside of the box so that I could acquire, you know, this asset. And so, um, there's a million of these scenarios that we can talk about. Um, and this can branch off into so many different conversations as, you know, I see things on social media and in the news even about, you know, reparations bills. And um, I saw somebody and I kind of laughed at it, even though it's not funny. I saw somebody tweet uh, what's happened with the uh, PPP loans tells us exactly what's going to happen if reparations is given. And I was like, Damn, like that's like that's a gut punch, but yeah. there's some there's some reality to that because you see a lot of the people who uh you know fraudulently taken out these PPP loans went out and went on vacation and 
both these liabilities and, you know, they don't have anything to show for it. And now with Biden, you know, doubling down on investigations relating to that PPP fraud, I'm, I'm very concerned about what that's going to look like in the coming years right. um, for Black people in particular um, who've participated in that. Yeah. Okay. Well, <clears throat> you mentioned um, Kiyosaki's cash flow quadrant and Ramsey Snowball. If you were going to um, just share with us your top three tips um, that you could give to our people for working to improve their financial situation, like what are your top three tips? So um, I love this question too. You know, Kiyosaki has the cash flow quadrant. Ramsey has the snowball. I have the three E's and that is um, exposure, education, execution. Um, and usually I, I give that the three E's as a response to the question, well, how do we overcome financial trauma? And so um, three E's really, it, that, that's the process that I followed. Exposure says, okay, this thing is possible, right? I can see somebody else did it. Um, now I know that it can be done. Education is understanding what steps are necessary to take in order to make that thing happen. So in my case, we'll, we'll talk about credit and real estate. I had a friend who was a couple of years older than me who had an 800 credit score. And I'm like, I didn't even know that credit went that high. I want an 800 credit score. Um, same friend had owned a multifamily property before they were 30. I said, well, I want to own a multifamily property before I'm 30. And so the, the follow-up to that was understanding what it took to get to that point. So how do I build my credit and how do I buy a home? And coincidentally, not coincidentally, those things are tied into each other, right? You got to have good credit to, to get the loan. And then the execution, which is arguably the hardest part, because there are a lot of people who are exposed. There are a lot of people who are educated. But when it comes to overcoming the what ifs that I shared earlier, right, the traumas that make you kind of stop in your track or second guess or procrastinate on pulling the trigger, um, that's where the execution comes in. And sometimes people can get over that on their own. I have a wonderful support system. I've always had a wonderful support system who just always believed in Rockin, right? They always, if Rockin wants to do it, it can be done. If anybody could do it, Rockin could do it. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. And so the reinforcement from my community and also my own internal confidence helped me kind of get over a lot of those fears, just face those fears and, and use fear as an ally. But that won't be everybody. And so I would say um, that's where the value of mentors, coaches, um, people who've done it before come in and uh, can hold your hand through the process. And that's why I think the work that we do is so important because you're showing people not only the education, um, not only telling them your story and what it is that you've been able to accomplish, but being able to help them kind of walk across that that barrier of really fear is what it is, um, or trauma, 
to accomplish and execute on that thing. So I, I'll say, you know, my thing is the three E's for sure. Okay. I like that. You're going to have to use that. Yeah. Um, you know, from the outside looking in, it, it really seems like you're on a mission. So a very simple question to you is, what is your mission and what do you want your legacy to be? Um, so, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is empowerment. Um, my mission is to empower people in general, but specifically people that look like me, um, to, and I use this phrase in my, um, in my book, believe in the impossibility of impossibility. Oh. And, uh, you know, really that's just saying that there's, there's no limit to what you can accomplish, right? We create these walls and these structures around why we can't do a thing. And that is the limitation, right? Ourselves. So um, that's not to ignore the barriers that exist or pretend that, you know, there isn't privilege in the world that makes some of these things easier for other people. It's to say that we recognize that these barriers exist and we find a way to navigate around them and make that thing happen. And I think that the biggest barrier that exists is within our minds. And so going back to our earlier point about this idea of poverty and scarcity, right? You can be making six figures, seven figures, become a millionaire, become a multimillionaire. We see it all the time with athletes and entertainers right. and turn around and they lose all of it mm -hmm. um, or a majority of it because of their mindset. And so how do we align ourselves spiritually, mentally, and then physically in this world, right, to be... Um, in control of our destinies, whether that be financial or otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's what I want my legacy to be. Somebody who came in, shook things up, mm -hmm. got people to start thinking and believing in themselves. And then they all did it, right? I want, I want people to say, I heard Rakim speak or I read something that Rakim wrote. And because of that, I was able to do this. And whatever this is, I want it to be a great thing, right? Somebody goes and finds a secret to recreating the pyramids because of something that Rakim said, that would be a wonderful accomplishment for me. Awesome. Love that. And again, like I said, when we started, um, actually following your content inspired me to go get certified. I was, I was curious about why. So for example, um, I started my first business when I was eight, right? Um, long story short, I ended up selling girls cookout cookies, but I worked out like this whole scheme for distribution in different schools. And, you know, I took a $100 loan from my aunt. Um, and over the, the spring Girl Scout cookie season, after paying her back, buying the cookies, paying my distributors, I still pocketed almost $2,000. And in three months, it was all gone. I couldn't figure out why, like, I thought I was rich. I would never have to work a day in my life. I was eight. <laughs> and since then, right, I've, I've always had this cycle of making lots of money and then not having a dollar. And I'm like, what is going on? So 
I realized that I needed to to kind of figure this thing out because what I think what happens for many of us when you know you can earn, you don't take your relationship with money as seriously as you should to really peel back the layers and uncover the trauma and work out those relationships so that you can be healthy. You don't pass down negative behaviors to subsequent generations. But I, I knew that I needed more tools and I had to start to understand financial psychology. So the exposure to you and your content did that for me. So I got the CFEI, I got another one. And, you know, as I started to think about this, I'm like, wow, had I not had that exposure from you, someone who looks like me, who's from, you know, the same part of the country, and you can relate to these things so that when you're giving it to me, it resonates. It's not academic. It's not something esoterical that, yeah, it sounds good on paper, but realistically, how is that going to relate to my life? And you don't know what it's like to be on food stamps, but I do. So how is that going to work for me? I didn't have that to worry about. So like one of the reasons, like, you know, whenever I see her kind of, I'm like, yo, Rakim said it. And like, when you had the, the hashtag, Rakim said it. Yeah, that's the impact that we need to have. You know what I mean? So I think you're well on your way to creating that legacy because I can't tell you how many times I've heard or been in a conversation with someone who said something that I know the answer that they're looking for is something that you've been teaching. Mm. So it's, it's going to multiply exponentially over time. You know, it's kind of like, you know, your your early investment in Apple, right? And the growth of that over time. So in any event, out of respect for your time, I'm not going to keep you um, any longer. But if people want to work with you, how can they work with you? How can they connect with you? Are you offering group coaching or one-to-one mentoring? What can people do um, to work with you to improve their financial situation? Yeah, I so I'm very responsive on social media and through my website, and everything is my name. So my website, rockhemsabri.com. Social media is all at rockhemsabri. No uh, dots, no underscores, because there's a lot of fakes out there now. Um, it's just at rockhemsabri. And um, I mean, right now I'm getting ready to go into conference season. So next month I'm going to a conference. The month after that I'm going to a conference. So I don't know that I... Um, have the capacity to work with anybody right now. But um, that said, I know definitely at the turn of the year, I'll have a lot of time. And um, those conversations can start today. Uh, if somebody's interested in working with me and they slide in my DM or they send me an email, I'm like, hey, let's work. Then we would talk about, you know, when time is going to slow down for me and we can get started. Um, but that's the easiest way, like I said. Um, very down-to-earth person, very accessible, um, at least in, in the current environment, right? Yeah. Who knows how long that will last? But um, DMs, emails, work, serious inquiries only, and um, I'm happy to help out. Yeah. And in the meantime, if people want to get your book, how can they do that? The book is available on Amazon. All right. All right. And it's financially irresponsible. You can search them by author name or by title. You'll find it there. A great read. Well worth the investment. Well, we'll wrap up. This has been Stairway to Seven um, because you got to take the elevator. You can't take the elevator. It's actually, you got to take the stairs. And six figures ain't what it used to be. We got to change the conversation. Start working towards making seven figures. I've been Ismail Abdurrahman. This has been Rakim Sabri. 
Follow him on social media. Everything is at his name. No dots, no underscores. Watch out for those fake accounts. Only follow the checks. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure connecting with you like this. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And I'm sure this is going to be a great benefit for our audience. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care.